Church, we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We find ourselves in chapter 12, verse 28. Now, what we've observed so far, since verse 13 anyways, is the Sanhedrin sending groups to Jesus, right? So we first had the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus, and then we had the Sadducees last week. We observed his uh, questioning or inquiry to Jesus, right, regarding, if you remember, first the Roman taxation, secondly, the resurrection, right? So they gave this hypothetical situation about this man or this woman who loses her husband over and over and over again. And uh, we observed some great teachings from both of these, but remember the nature of the questioning that was brought to Jesus uh, was for the purpose, principal purpose, of trapping him, right? So remember that this group is very much inclined, they're in tension with Jesus, and they're inclined to have Jesus destroyed, and their plot is to uh, ultimately fulfill that. Okay, well, we find ourselves in the final dialogue. So there was, it's a, a trio of conversations that Jesus has with three different groups, and we're in our final one. So verse 28, we find ourselves, Jesus and the scribes having a conversation. It's not really the scribes, it's actually just one of the scribes. Just one man comes to Jesus. So let's take a read at Mark 12, verse 28, all the way to 34. So just seven verses. I'll read it from my Bible, and you can follow in yours. This is the word of God. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. He asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Amen. The word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we come to your works, uh, to your word, uh, seeking its truth, seeking its teaching. Lord, this ancient text we call this the Bible is something that you breathed into existence. And so, Lord, we understand there's life in this word, that this is truly bread to our souls. We ask for its sustenance at this time, uh, that which can only come through your will and your spirit. We seek it now. We thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our sermon is entitled, The Foremost Law. Some of your Bibles or commonly people will refer to this as the greatest of the commandments, the great commandments, right? The foremost law. Now, in the previous two episodes, as I just mentioned, we saw the Pharisees approach Jesus along with the Herodians to trap him with a question regarding, if you remember, Roman taxation, right? Then we had the Sadducees, and they come to ask Jesus about the resurrection and the afterlife. And in both cases, at the very end, Jesus answered most wisely to them. That all those who heard and were there, uh, they saw his answer, heard his answer, were astonished and amazed. And then, of course, those who were inquiring Jesus of these trap questions, they, of course, walk away with probably more hostility in their hearts and uh, likely 
not much to say. Now, in today's text, we see the third and final group approach Jesus, but it is no group at all, but rather a representative, if you will, of a group uh, who may have been acting on his own accord. So this singular scribe may have just been, you know, acting out of his own sort of uh, own desire to speak to Jesus, perhaps. We're not certain of that. We're not given detail. However, he is a representative of a group, uh, part of the Sanhedrin known as the scribes. Now, if you recall, this group, the scribes, were the men most knowledgeable in the scriptures. They uh, dedicated themselves to this, uh, strictly, of course, in the sense of what the scriptures actually said, right? If you remember, they were sort of literalists. They were like that of lawyers or policymakers today who know the word of the law to a T. And so that's sort of what a scribe would do. Scribes were also, of course, the ones who were copying the manuscripts. They were writing the scriptures down as well. They were like that of lawyers today. Now, after hearing the previous conversations Jesus shared with his brothers from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribe approaches Jesus, but it appears his intent does not share with the previous two groups, at least in some sort of malice or maliciousness, in that his question to Jesus really doesn't contain any kind of trap in it. But it bears the mark of what? Curiosity, doesn't it? It's genuine curiosity here. Perhaps this man was compelled by Jesus' wise responses prior, or perhaps this question was something that was burning on his mind, that he wanted to inquire of someone that he thought could possibly shed some wisdom and some light. Now, whatever the case or the intention was, uh, the intention of this man bears more uh, of a mark of a genuine tone that stands in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that doesn't really mean that the scribes as a group or as a whole had, you know, um, shared in the intent of this man. Um, but it's certainly what would have been the case that the scribes um, as a group would have shared likely their intentions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they wanted Jesus removed in some way. I mean, they were, after all, all part of the Sanhedrin. So is it that the Sanhedrin gave up and were like, ah, don't even bother sending the scribes? Um, we can't be certain. Whatever the case may be, Mark gives us uh, detail of all three of these groups coming to Jesus, but this last one is peculiar. It's a little bit, if not completely, different from the previous two. It still holds um, a great teaching for us, and it's important that we do get into this text. Um, but this man alone certainly cannot be accused of sharing in sort of the maliciousness uh, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees before him. So he approaches Jesus, and he asks a very simple question. Uh, and he asks Jesus, what is the foremost command or law, right? What is the greatest of the commandments, right? It's clear that there is, I guess, no trap to the question. And how do we know this? Well, we know, that, we know this because Jesus plainly answers. Usually when there's a trap component to the question, out of Jesus' you know, divine wisdom and knowledge, he would pick up on that. And remember in the first question and then the second, he answers uh, in a way that really reveals the trap element of the question. But here, there's no hesitation from Jesus. He just quickly gets into his answer. And there's no sort of in, uh, inclination to us um, that there is something malicious within the question. Nonetheless, there is a test in the question. There is a test. So what's the test? The test here that ought to be heated is this, that there are 613 Old Testament laws, 365 pro prohibitions within the Old Testament, 248 positive commands, listed in the Old Testament. 
Now, to ask a man to shave all of this down to one singular commandment is quite a tall task for even the most wise of teachers and the most knowledgeable of men. But note again this, that there is no questioning from Jesus to the man, no rebuke, no avoidance of the question at all. There is but the words of the Lord himself. And the, and the words of the Lord is this, that there is a foremost commandment. And here it is, he says, the great commandment to love the Lord your God. And then he gives us a second, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. No hesitation and gives it to us plain and clear. So there must be something important for us to understand and draw from this. So let's take a look at the text. I have two points to today's sermon. The first is this, the sum of the laws. We'll look at that in verses 28 to 30. And then our second point, I've entitled Love is More, verses 31 to 33. Two points, the sum of the laws and love is more. Let's look at the first point, and in your Bibles, we'll be referring to verses 28 to 30. Now, one of the things I used to do with my friends during recess I don't know if that still exists, but recess is a thing, <laughs> was to gather together in a circle. I imagine it's a thing. I'm just joking. Together in a circle, we would gather, right, every recess. Kind of like when Koreans finish eating, they come out of the restaurant, and they, for some reason, always uh, gather together in a circular group and start talking about things for some reason. It's, uh, it's a habit of ours, isn't it? Well, I would do this with my friends. So every recess, I would gather with my friends, especially on winter months, right? Um, you know, we would go outside, but I can't even imagine I did this, that in grade, like the earlier grades, that kids would just put on their winter clothing, go outside uh, in the freezing cold. But anyways, that's what we did. Uh, so we would go out, and in a circle, we would discuss, you know, all the entertainments of life, right? And some of the things we liked to talk about were TV shows. Back then, we didn't have Netflix or that stuff, so it was all TV shows. Uh, the two shows, at least in my middle school years, that uh, I wouldn't say it was really appropriate for me to watch, but anyways, I did watch it. It was Simpsons and Friends, right? If you guys ever watched those shows. Um, and we would just discuss these TV shows. Too. Oh, yeah, yesterday, you know, did you guys watch this episode of this, this, this? And we would recall all our favorite scenes, right? We would recite lines from the show, try to sum up the show uh, for those that missed it, right? Very Mikey-like in how we would go about, you know, reenacting every single scene with great drama and exaggeration. The key to summarizing something is to focus on what? The most important elements of that which was, that which makes something what it is. To focus on the most important elements. Now, you don't need the details or the nuances. You just need the most important points. You want to say it clearly, and you want to get concise with these things. But that's also what makes summarizing very hard. Right, to summarize a 30-minute television show or a one-hour television show or whatever length it was and to sum it up into just a few sentences is quite difficult. Then this is a practice, right? And that like summing things up, this is a practice that Jewish leaders and teachers underwent throughout their history. They contemplated how do we summarize the teachings of God, the scriptures themselves, the laws, the Torah. Now, fundamental understanding in Judaism was that the laws in the Old Testament had degrees of uh, importance, but not in the sense like this is not important. Importance in the level of, I guess, ethical value or um, I guess what we can measure the morality of these laws. Does that make sense? I'll explain a little further. So it was a fundamental understanding. They looked at the laws, the 613 of them, and they realized that some of these laws were a little bit more egregious than the others, morally, right? 
So another way to look at this is to look at the Old Testament laws and realize that certain violations were more severe than others. Certain transgressions, certain sins were more severe than others. Jesus teaches in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that the commandments are to be kept. Violations will be uh, remembered, Jesus says, even the least of them. Those are Jesus' words. Even the least of violations will be remembered. So it's to say that the commandments have these sort of ethical degrees to them. We all understand, we all understand that some sins are more damaging and harmful than others, right? Certainly uh, murdering someone, right, mindlessly or carelessly or out of anger or hatred or whatever it may be, that is a little different than being jealous, right? Having jealousy in your heart, right? There's, there's something that's a little bit more harmful, if you, I think you would agree with me, about murdering someone. But we also know this, Romans teaches us, for the wages of all sin is death. That all sin shares universally in an eternal punishment. So whether you murder, or you lie, or you cheat, or whatever the case may be, jealousy in your heart, right? You share in the same eternal punishment because it's a transgression against God. So the Jews pondered, okay, and all throughout their history, well then which of these commandments is the most egregious to break? Right? It's a logical question to kind of focus on, right? If there are degrees to these commandments, well, which of them is the greatest? And so they contemplated this. And it's not for the purpose of disregarding the other 612, if I figure out the one singular one that's the greatest, right? But it's rather to kind of measure them up and see, well, I really don't want to break this one. Now, the Jews were really, really cautious about this stuff, Right? Uh, I've explained to some of you about the Tetragrammaton. In your Bibles, in your Old Testament, uh, God's name is the Lord, right? So it's L-O-R-D in capitals. We don't find that in the New Testament. The L-O-R-D in the New Testament is L, capital L, and then just O-R-D, Kyrios, the Greek word for it, right? But in the Old Testament, whenever it says the Lord in capitals, right, uh, it is the name Adonai, right? Adonai, or, or it could be Jehovah, or something like that. Uh, but traditionally, it's what we call the Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh name, right? The Y-H-W-H. Now, biblical Hebrew does not have vowels, so we actually don't know how it's pronounced, but the name itself is purposely lost. So when God revealed his, himself, his name, his true name to Adam and Moses and all others, they decided, because one of the great commandments was do not uh, use the Lord's name in vain, right? That's one of the great commandments. They thought God's name was so holy that it was better not even remembered by God's people, so as to they might mistakenly, right, or foolishly mistreat that name. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if we knew God's name, we wouldn't use it in vain. Yeah, you would. Oh, my God would become, oh, my whatever his name is, right? Immediately. All my non-Christian friends, every time something happens, they're like, oh, Jesus Christ. I'm like, praise God, right? Every single time, we would use the names of, uh, of the name of God in a most harmful way to him like we would just mistreat that name for sure so the jews knowing this and i guess this was a wisdom of, that i had uh, that they had decided we won't even write it down so every time in the bible in the old testament every time that name appeared they just wrote y h w h and we have no idea how it's pronounced or how it's supposed to be read 
extraordinary thing, isn't it? And look at us. And how do we treat God, right? True believers of God, and this is sort of a lesson in this text, when you truly know him to be the one true God, there's actually a proper response to knowing this God. We'll get to that. But you can understand the Jewish heart. If there is a great commandment, what could it be? Because I really don't want to break that one, right? So there's a principle or spirit to these laws that the Jews wanted to understand. Now, the question that is posed to Jesus today is not the first time in all of God's people's history that this question has been posed to a teacher. Jesus is, in fact, not the first one to even attempt to answer it. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, notes of two texts, the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, These are Jewish commentaries and documents that by some Jewish people they would consider sort of uh, very, very holy texts, um, not, not on the level of the authority of Scripture. Uh, but they would consider them to be very reliable texts, right? Historical documents of the Jewish people written by very faithful Jews. The Mishnah and the Talmud. In these documents, it notes to us these famous stories of rabbis. So here's here's Rabbi Hillel, 20 years before Jesus. He taught that the golden rule of the laws, the Torah, could be summed up with this singular rule. I don't know if he coined this, but certainly what we, we know this phrase that I'm about to say, Right? It's kind of like English idiom at this point. Um, I don't know if it comes from Hillel, but certainly he might be the first person to have written it down. He wrote, What you would not want, want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. Right? What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor, he wrote. Rabbi Akiba, he wrote, Leviticus 19.8 sums up the laws. You shall love your neighbor yourself. Rabbi Simlai looked at Habakkuk for chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. So disagreement about, uh, uh, among the rabbis as to what sums up the laws. What is the great principle that we live by? Now there's some merit to these answers, right? If I gave, if Jesus gave any one of these answers, you would maybe go, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? But Jesus has an answer. It's one of the first times we, have, we get a very direct answer from Jesus. It's crystal clear. In fact, it makes preaching this text a little difficult because there's nothing to really expand on, right? He just quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. And if you're any kind of Bible reader, you know how important this text is. In fact, on my licensure exam, I have to memorize this passage. It's so important. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5. What does it read there? It says, well, I'm paraphrasing, that God is one, right? The Lord your God is one, and that he's to be loved with all that we are, all that we have. This text from the Old Testament is known as the, for those of you who know this, the Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. It's the first word of the the text in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, here is Shema, O Israel. That's the whole text, or that's how the text begins. Listen. It is likely the most recited prayer in all of the Jewish faith. Truly Jewish people, right? They would, uh, uh, every morning when they wake up, they would recite this prayer. Hear, O Israel. Every night before they go to bed, they would recite this prayer. Hear, O Israel. 
I remember attending a bar mitzvah, if you know what that is, and hearing this text read out by my friend aloud as a prayer. The idea is that the proper response to knowing that God is one and that he is the one true God is to love him totally, completely, and utterly. The word repeated uh, is that the word, the word that is repeated and used in this verse or in these verses is all, all your heart, all your strength, right? Mark's quote of Jesus adds one extra layer. Jesus adds one more thing, right? In the Deuteronomy text, you'll note it's three things. Heart, soul, strength. Jesus adds mind, understanding, right? It doesn't change the text or in any way. It just adds one extra layer. And note that the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength are prefaced with this Greek word, X, E-X, X heart, X soul, X strength, right? Well, what does that mean? Why is, what's the importance of that? Well, this word in your English Bible has been translated as likely with, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with your strength, right? It makes it sound like your heart, your soul, your strength, and, all those, and your mind are sort of means by which we love God. But that's not what X means. X actually means, and it's hard to translate it into English, but what it really means is from the source of, from the depth of your heart, from the source of your heart, love the Lord your God. From the source of your mind, love the Lord your God. Same goes for soul and strength. It means that we don't love God with our hearts as a means, but that we love God from our hearts as a source. Now that might seem like semantics to you and it may, maybe makes no sense, but let me give you a couple, of, let me give you an example. It's like when we are, we're taught to sing. If you've ever been taught to sing, you don't sing to strain your neck, that you sing through your nostrils, that you sing uh, to just get to those notes and you sing, I guess, out of your, uh, like just your lungs, right? That's not how you're taught to sing. Usually you're taught to sing from the, from the depth of your stomach, to sing from deep within you, to bring air and oxygen out, to make singing easier and to make it, better. It's from the inner self that we sing and we bring out that which is better and best. This is in line with the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, to not have any other gods before him, for he alone is God, and he alone thus is to be loved. So that's the great commandment. The sum of the laws is that one Great commandment, but it doesn't end there. Jesus attaches one more. So here's, here's uh, point number two to the chase sermon. Is love is more, verses 31 to 33. Now where the scribe asked for one foremost commandment, Jesus gives a second. He gave a second. The second is in line with the thinking of Rabbi Akiba, who quoted Leviticus 19, to love neighbor as yourself. Note that the rabbi would have only been thinking of Jewish neighbors right, as Jews would have read the text in that way. It was the conventional, conventional thinking of the time. But Jesus and Christians following him would have heard neighbor as a much broader term as Gentiles were being welcomed into and flooding into and being engrafted into the covenant family of God. The prime example of Jesus' understanding of loving neighbor other than the cross, right, the cross is the prime example of all expressions of Christ's love to us, uh, but is expressed explicitly in the teaching in Luke 10. And in Luke 10, we get the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. What happens there? A man is left to dead on the side of the road, 
And uh, there's two Jewish men that pass by. And these men are so religious and hold so closely uh, to the Levitical practices of the priests and the Levitical practices of the Sabbath. And they held to cleanliness and they looked at this man. Not only was he uh, beaten and torn and, and completely uh, bloodied, right? Uh, they just couldn't touch him. They couldn't help him. So they, they did not help him for reasons of the law and their rigid thinking. And it is instead this third person who happened to be a Samaritan. Samaritan, if you remember, is a half-Jew. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, that they would have no, uh, Jews would have no uh, relation with these people because they considered them sellouts. Not only that, they were religiously hypocrites to them, or religiously, sorry, heretics to them. It's instead this Samaritan, this half-Jew, who comes to this man, who helps him up, and then Jesus, at the end of the parable, he looks at those around him, and he asks this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? to this man. He then tells us, and they answer, the third, the Samaritan. He is the one who is good. He then tells his listeners, then go and do the same. Go and do the same. The same as what? The good Samaritan, right? To love neighbor as yourself. That's sort of the the teaching that we get, the application, if you will, of this second great commandment. It is this same Jesus who taught his disciples to love one another. And by this means, others would know that they are followers of him. To unify these two commands, to love God and to love neighbor, is in Jesus' teaching the very essence of the laws. The spirit of the laws is found in keeping these two commandments. They are principles over all laws. They are not separate, not one without the other. For loving God is best displayed in loving his people. Love of God leads to love of people. The second complements the first. And so they share a bond that cannot be broken. It is not uncommon to hear in the church that Jesus' death redeemed us to God and also to his people. It gave us relationship with him and in turn a relationship with his family. You may have heard of the vertical and horizontal relationships that are, that are restored by Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And this teaching speaks to that. Sometimes it's a little too simplified, but anyways, it, it's not an untrue thing to say. This is why church is so important. This is why church is so important. To the believer who says, I love God and I don't need church because I have God and he's everywhere and he's everything to me. I have his word at home. I could read it. I can listen to YouTube sermons. I don't need God's people. They just stress me out. They're so annoying. They're so unloving. I just get into tension with these people all the time. Friends, you've completely obliterated the second commandment. The one who loves God is not someone who proclaims, I don't need church. The one who loves God understands our call to the church, to love it even in its brokenness, even in its sort of shattered state. We love the ecclesia, the assembly of God's people. This would be to ignore his call, to love his people. It would be, blind. It would be, it would be to be blind to his urges, to be like the older brother of the prodigal son, doer of the father's work, stare in his house, but inactive in going after his younger brother. I love how Edwards puts it. Love of God is prior to love of neighbor. 
it holds a higher priority for sure. But love of God is what establishes the possibility to love people. The one who experiences God's love, the Bible teaches us, is the one who will be able to share and live it out. To love God is priority indeed. Don't shift those two things. Jesus doesn't either, right? He doesn't say, there are two great commandments. Here they are. He says, there is a great commandment, but there is a second, and he unifies the two. So this is very important for us. To love God is priority indeed, but it is not the end of the Christian endeavor, for that love of God drives us to love neighbor as well. I want to conclude with a couple thoughts. And uh, if you're taking notes, this is probably where you want to take notes. Now, you know, as a preacher, there really isn't much I can, or really should, add to such a profound, simple teaching like this. All right, this sermon could have been, and maybe I wasted your time, but like one minute? It's like, well, Jesus said, love God, love neighbor, and that's what you should do. Pretty simple, right? And we walk away knowing the two points of the sermon. Love God, love neighbor. The scribe is surprisingly not hostile to Jesus, isn't he? Whereas the previous two groups were. They're not hostile to Jesus' response. He's not even discouraged by it. He applauds Jesus and saying, well said, teacher. And even more surprising, perhaps, based on how the previous two conversations have gone, Jesus applauds the scribe. He applauds the scribe. There's a cordial ex- exchange between the two. And they perhaps demonstrate the very work of loving neighbor, right? It's applied right away. Love thy neighbor as yourself. But there are two things. There are two things I want to leave you with. And I hope that they would be thought or food for thought and hopefully conviction in your heart. And before that, I want to remind you of this. Remember the commands to love God and love neighbor. Uh, seek to do this even in personal loss or sacrifice. And seek to do this, loving God, loving neighbor, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's your application. If you want an application, there it is. Right? Even if it costs you everything, right? To love others, right? As God has loved you. That's maybe what we're supposed to do as Christians. That's the great thing we're supposed to do in our lives, right? And that love becomes a variable for many things. It's a category that encompasses so much. Paul would say, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. First Corinthians, right? We learned that text. When Paul lists out the fruits of the Spirit, the very first thing he lists out is love. It's really love, semicolon, everything else. Because everything else that follows love is just categorized under love. Right? The person who's loving is joyful. The person who's loving is gentle. The person who's loving is patient. The person who's loving is kind. All of those things flow out of the loving Christian, the loving person. Right? So there's your application if you want that. But I got a couple things to think about here because I really sat on this text for this week. Your God is one, your neighbor is his creation. We love God, we love neighbor. There's just something that left me struck in the text at the end of the passage, and I leave you with these two thoughts. The first is this, that the scribe says that loving God and loving neighbor is much more. He says, it's much more, right? He says, Jesus, well said. And then he says, yeah, loving God, loving neighbor, these are much more than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. So Jesus just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and strength. And this man, he says, this is greater than all offering, all sacrifice. 
That is an incredibly bold statement coming from someone who lived and worked in the temple and from a Jewish leader that would have had a sacramental understanding of the sacrifices and offerings. What an incredible thing to say. Perhaps he saw that loving in this way, like loving God, loving neighbor as yourself, loving God with all, your, you know, all that you are, would render someone not even in need of offerings and sacrifices anymore. If you keep these commandments, what could you bring to the altar if you're loving God and loving neighbor? What is there to sacrifice for? Perhaps that's what he saw. Or perhaps he saw that the sacrifices and offerings that the high priests and the other priests were performing were actually insufficient in covering all of the sins of God's people totally. That there was something lacking in this practice, right? Not lacking in the sense that God had implemented something that was, you know, not good enough, but just lacking in its total coverage, lacking in some sense, regardless of the reason, regardless of what was going on in this man's mind, because all I can do is contemplate. How extraordinary, friends, is it that this man was able to say this, that loving God and loving neighbor is greater, it's much more than all the offerings and sacrifices. And to whom was he speaking? Consider this. To whom was he saying these words? Why but the Lamb of God himself? who came to die for the sins of the world, the ultimate offering, the ultimate sacrifice, where those sacrifices lacked, this one would not, for he is God taking on flesh, who came to die so that those who place their faith and trust in him as their atonement for their sins, they would find the very thing that this man was not far from, salvation in God's kingdom forever. I can't imagine having been a priest back then or even a Roman priest now today who needs to hear the sins of all their people day by day, week by week. When does it end, I might ask? And yet to us we know a child was born, that his death was death to our sin, to know that these practices of ours could never suffice, but that his work is more than enough, blood enough to cover all sin. But that leads me to my second thought. So if that's the first thought, this man is proclaiming to the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, there is no lamb in this world that is as great as loving God and loving neighbor. And this Lamb of God before him came to express his love to us to die on a cross for our sins. And that's the first point. But here's the second. Here's what, it leads into the second thought. That this scribe saw agreement with Jesus. And then suddenly Jesus changes the topic. Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. You're not there, <laughs> but you're not far. What could, have the, what could have provoked this word? It's very easy to hear this as a scribe and be like, offended. But it doesn't appear that he was, or at least we're not given detail on that. But something in Jesus or a reason in Jesus, there was a reason to say these words to this man. In reading the text and the conversation, the flow of the dialogue, it's very sudden and it's very off topic. It's very John 3-like in his conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus brings to attention the reason he came to this earth. So that those who are far or close or wherever could find home through him. This scribe came to inquire of Jesus, perhaps to pass judgment on who Jesus was, on the basis of their dialogue and their conversation. That's the scribe's mind. And it is instead Jesus who passes judgment on him. So it dawned on me this week, then, 
that this is what needs to change in the minds of people, that it is not far, it is not from our high horse we demand God to make himself known to us, but, yet, but rather that we yield to the God who has made himself knowable to us. For he is our judge, we are not his. This man is not far, and I, I wish to tell him if I could and if I ever, if I was there and I had the mind I have now, which is a weird situation, I would tell him this. Friend, just a bit more. Just a bit more, brother. For you see, this man you speak to, this is the Messiah you seek. This is the sacrifice, the lamb. The very lamb of God. That is enough. Put your faith and trust in him. So praise be to God for loving us first so that we can love him and we can love neighbor. Inspire our heads in prayer and reflect on what God has taught us today.